the book of John, uh, talking about Palm Sunday, uh, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. And I titled this morning's message, uh, Tragedy or Triumph? How, how many were raised uh, in the Catholic Church? Was there anybody here? And, and, and Palm Sunday was always this great celebration, right? It was this, you know, you got palm branches and, you know, people, you, they'd give you a little palm when you came in. Um, but when you read the gospel accounts, in the truest sense, Palm Sunday is everything but a, a celebration. It's really uh, Jesus, in the sense, of, is what he's doing is he's proclaiming a judgment on the nation of Israel because they missed it. They missed the day of his visitation. And so it's a triumph for people who've placed their hope and their trust in Jesus. And for the most part, as we read this story and you read the go whole gospel account, uh, you'll find that it wasn't the Jews in Jerusalem that were celebrating. They were skeptical. It was all the other people that were traveling and coming alongside and coming into Israel that saw what Jesus was doing. They experienced it. So there's something about a changed life, amen, you know, that, that, that gets people's attention. And there's something about religion that really uh, it, it's death in and of itself. And so there's so much that we can glean from this. I appreciate it. that it's a communion Sunday, you know, that we're here is to bring us back to the cross and remind us of what Jesus has done for us. And as we've been in our study in, in Romans, you know, that religion can't save you. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. It's what Jesus has accomplished for us. But even in that, there's a responsibility because here is the Jews who are extremely religious, right? And yet Jesus is proclaiming judgment upon their lives because they missed, they missed a date. You think about that, and that because that date is so important. And what that date is is to be true in any of our lives. You know, it's the date of His visitation. You know, when Jesus stands at the door of your heart and He knocks, if you don't open the door, all that's left. You know, if you're with the, you know our men on Monday nights going through the Book of Revelation, you can see you know the Church of Laodicea there that Jesus is on the outside and and He's looking in. That's a dangerous place, and so there's much that we can glean. There there is a tremendous celebration though from the standpoint of that, if we see him for who he is and we accept what he has done for us, and then we accept the call that he's placed upon our life. And so John will draw that out. And so we'll take a moment here. Let's pray and we'll jump into this. And Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for everybody that's here today. Thank you for this wonderful week ahead of us, uh, Lord. It's just, it reminds me of what it must have been like in some ways in Israel, in Jesus' day. Uh, there's just so much effort and energy that goes into um, Lord, this week in the life of the church, I think with all the different services, all the preparation, all the things to celebrate, Lord, uh, your death, uh, Lord, your burial, and ultimately your resurrection on Easter morning. And so, Lord, we thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you for going to the cross for us. We were just singing that in worship. And Lord, help it to be more than a song today. Lord, help it penetrate our hearts afresh and that we'd never uh, just feel like that, Lord, we know it all, or that, God, we've heard this story so many times that we, the, the fear is that we become like the religious Jews, that it doesn't, it doesn't speak to our heart like it did those pilgrims who are coming from far away uh, into Jerusalem to celebrate, Lord, the Passover in Jesus' day. And so, Lord, we look to you, we thank you, we bless you, we praise you today, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you, and Lord, our, our heart's desire is to magnify and glorify you today. Help us accomplish that, Lord. As we lift you up, draw each of us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you, when you look at you know, Palm Sunday, obviously it's a great reminder, first and foremost, that God's timing is perfect. Amen? It doesn't always seem that way to us, but it is, and you see this, you know, and we'll, we'll cover you know, some ground here. But there's something about you know, God's timing, it, it, the way it speaks to our lives today. And I, I think about this, two things that you know, come to mind is that you know, his timing, you know, causes my faith to grow. Amen. Because it's not always in, in God, you know, time is not my time. And so I have to learn how to be patient and to wait. And, and that can be difficult at times, trusting in God's perfect timing. But the, this story here demonstrates that God's timing is always perfect. Again, even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense. And then the other thing about God's timing, and, and really this is probably the main thing here, is that it ensures that he alone gets the glory. Amen. You can't force God's hand. You know, God moves when he wants to move. The key is just like in the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? When, when the cloud moves, move, right? When the pillar of fire moves, move, you know, whatever, whatever God's doing, you know, 
again, I love that expression that says, you know, the, the most dangerous place to be is outside the will of God, but the safest place to be is right where God's at. Amen. Is to be right in the center of his will. That is the safest place to be. The most dangerous place would be any other place. And so it reminds me of Psalm 31, 15, where it says, my future is in your hands. You know, we live in very uncertain times today in the world, don't we? But I love that expression and I share it with you, you know, frequently from this pulpit. You know, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. Amen. And so I hope, you know, as you study through, you know, again, this triumphal entry here that Jesus makes into Jerusalem, that it just reminds you that God is faithful to his word and that he's in complete control, even when everything around is chaotic. And that speaks to me today because I look at the, around the world in which we live in, it's completely chaotic. And you're, if you're like me at all, you probably at times you go, God, I mean, is this, are you in this? You know, I mean, is, are you really, are you really working in this? And, and to know that he is. And so uh, again, here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem. You know, he's presented himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's the beginning of this last week, you know, of Jesus first coming into this world. He's coming again, but this, it is first coming, you know, Jesus did what? He lived a perfect sinless life and he goes to the cross where he dies in our place, securing eternal life for all who had placed their hope and their trust in him. And we call it the, the Passion Week. And I'm always interested, you know, when I, I think of that word passion, because I don't think of it in the terms of what it means. Passion means suffering. So we, it, it can be, you know, kind of, it can throw you off when you think about we, a triumphal entry here. That seems like a great celebration, but it's actually the entering point into his suffering. Everything about it, and we'll take a look at that, you know, points to the fact that there was not, in, in Jesus' heart anyway, there wasn't celebration, that it was actually heartbreaking what was transpiring as he rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. You know, in John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes the reason why he pins his gospel. If you remember this, he says, but th these things are written so that you may, and I love this word, he says, continue to believe. See, it's, it's not just that we come to faith, right, in Jesus, but that we continue in the faith, because one of the things that we come to understand is that Jesus himself said, that when all these trials and these heartaches and these headaches come into the world, he said, something's going to happen. He said, there's going to be a falling away. Even people who once walked with Jesus are going to turn and walk with him no more. And so John writes these things, not everything, he says, but he writes these things that if you and I would just, what, continue in them and that we would think, do what we're doing today is that we would be in church, we'd be in fellowship, that we'd be listening to God's word, not being what conformed to the world we've been studying in Romans, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that it helps us come back to go, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because it's easy to forget, right? You know, I tell you all the time, I, I forget the things I need to remember. I remember the things I need to forget. And so coming back to this, but he says, these things are written that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, okay? The son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. There's power in the name of Jesus. Amen. I love, I, I watch these little Instagram, you know, feeds and it has where a, a guy, and these are literal feeds where a guy jumps into this elderly woman's car at gunpoint, right? Puts a gun to her and says, give me all your money. And she says, in the name of Jesus, I'm not giving you anything. And next thing you know, she praying with the guy, leads him to Jesus Christ right there in the front seat of her car. Then there's a bunch of gang, you know, members and they're fighting out, the, out on the street and they're beating up on this kid. And there's, these two elderly women, they got their Bibles, they come out and she takes her Bible. I mean, she's got one of those big Bibles too, right? I mean, the good kind, you know, leather bound, everything. She takes it and she slams it up against the guy's forehead, right? And, she, and you see, she's in the other, and the other lady falls on her knees and raises her arms and you can't hear what they're saying. You just see what's going on and you just watch. Everybody scatters. They just run. And so then they interview him and they say, well, what did you do? He said, well, I said, the name of Jesus. You know, I said, the name of Jesus, you know, I take, you know, authority over this. You know, we talk in the world about, you know, we see this, I want to be a social influencer. You don't want to really be an influencer. What you want is to be someone with what? Authority, right? That even the demons did what? They, they, they flee, you know, at the presence of Jesus, the authority that we have, you know, in Christ Jesus. And John is talking about this. So if you study John's gospel, I mean, to think about what he's doing here, half the gospel of John 
is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. That's how important this week is. You know, you think of all the, all the gospel writers all place importance on Jesus' life. And if they do, the question that begs to be asked, should we? You go, absolutely. So you think of this, just, you know, giving you some thought here, 89 chapters altogether in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's 89 total. Four of those chapters cover the first 30 years of his life, just four. 85 chapters cover the last three and a half years of his life. 29 chapters cover the last week of his life. Yeah, where's the focus? It's right there. Communion, the cross, the blood of Jesus, the body of Christ broken for us. And it's why it's so important. That's why I love, you know, Easter week. It just brings everything back where it puts the focus where it needs to be on what Christ has accomplished for us. So if I gave you a little backstory into this with regard to Palm Sunday, you go back 2,000 years. Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian, he says that at the time of Jesus in these festivals, that the, the, population in Jerusalem uh, would swell to about two to two and a half million people. And with the number of sacrifices that were made, it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for over 250,000 lambs to be slaughtered. I mean, so you think about you know, the timing and God's timing of this, right? That all these lambs are being slaughtered at the Passover. And here's Jesus, as John declares, right? The lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He comes riding into Jerusalem as Larry was praying and worshiping on the foal of a donkey. And you go, wow, there's something about that. He's wanting to get our attention and, and, and in such a way that what? It would be a life-changing you know, decision that for each and every one of us, not just for the Jews that were there that day. And, and the thing that, that troubles me is when I realized that the Jews that were in Jerusalem, they missed it. And, and, and what I learned from that is how easy it is for us, easy for us. You know, we come to church, we, we know the Bible. I mean, we don't know the Bible as well as the Jews did. I would, I would, would you agree? I mean, I don't know any of us, you know, that have memorized the first five books of the Bible, know by heart. You can memorize the scripture. I've always loved what Greg Laurie said, but it's not that, that you get into the Bible so much as that does the Bible get into you? Yeah. And so what we learn is the Bible wasn't really getting into them. A matter of fact, we'll read as you study this, they're very skeptical of Jesus. They, they, they're not excited. The Jews, the religious Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees especially, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had a major problem with Jesus. They actually, they had already plotted to take him and to kill him. And now we're going to find, you know, that they want to take Lazarus too, you know? And so you look at this and so they're there to celebrate the Passover, which was to take them back another 15 year, 100 years, right? to the time of the Exodus. Remember, due to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, you know, what did God do? He brought the plagues upon Egypt and the 10th plague being what? The death of the firstborn. And the only way that you could escape that death was to do what? Was to take an unblemished lamb and was to sacrifice that lamb and to take that lamb's blood and to put it above the doorpost and on the sides, on the bottom. And really, what was it? It was a symbol of what? The cross. And that if you came under that blood, that the angel of death would pass over you. So they were there to celebrate the Passover. The timing of God is perfect. He's got their attention. I mean, one of the things that you don't have to fear in your life, you know, God is not willing that any would perish, right? But that all would come to repentance. And Romans, as we were studying that, has God made it possible for every heart to know him? Yes. He said that he's, he's written, you know, his word upon our heart. He's given us a conscience. We all have the ability to connect with God. And I love that. It's not that God has chosen some and not chosen some. You know, everybody has the opportunity, but we have a choice too. That's why really Palm Sunday to me is it's either a tragedy because you miss it or it's a triumph because you receive it. Amen. And so as you, you look at this, you know, it, it, like I said, it's, it's a beautiful picture. In verse one there in John chapter uh, 12, it says this, it says, six days before the Passover celebration uh, began, Jesus arrives in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man that he had raised from the dead. So this would make it six days before it would be Saturday. Bethany, if you've been with us to, to Israel, it's just over the hill uh, from Jerusalem there, over past the Mount of Olives. Um, that's where Lazarus' house was. Uh, it's the 10th day of Nisan, not to be confused with the automobile there. Uh, and the Jewish families, they would pick a lamb and they would do this. And you think about Jesus, he's going he's gonna to go from trial to trial, right? 
He's going to be examined, you know, before Pilate, you know, and, and Caiaphas, and they take him back and forth. And they, and what do they discover? As Pilate says, he washes his hands. He goes, I find no what blemish in him. Looking at him in the morning, looking at him in the afternoon, looking at him in the twilight. So when they would sacrifice a lamb, they would have to see it in all these different lights. Like I was sharing with you a couple of weeks ago, it's one of those amazing things, like you, how things look different in different light. And I, I've shared with you, you know, if you're like me, my wife and I, we've painted our house numerous times. And sometimes we painted numerous times after we bought the paint that we thought we were actually going to use. And then we'd get it home and you'd put it on the wall and you go, and my wife's looking at me like, did we get the wrong paint? And I'm going, no, this is the paint that you pictured. Well, it was on a little swat. You know, then you look at that thing and I go, well, it, it doesn't look like that on the wall, right? Everybody else had that problem. Yeah. And you go, and they have lots of paint that you can actually buy at the paint store that is from my wife and I. It's been returned uh, buckets of it, you know, but it looks different in different light. You have to examine it in different light. Well, that's, that's what under the law the Jews had to do with regard to the lamb to make sure that it was without blemish. So they would examine this. So Jesus, the lamb of God is going back and forth. You know, we see this throughout this week, trial to trial, and there's, and, and there's no blemish in him, right? So they would examine this, this uh, Passover lamb from the 10th to the 14th, and then they would sacrifice it for the Passover. And you keep in mind this date, you know, if you're a note taker, you might write this down and just go back and actually study it for yourself. April 6th, 32 AD. It's a date that just reminds us that God's timing is perfect, okay? I mean, I would have loved, I think, like you to have been there at this party where Jesus and Lazarus are at. Wouldn't that be awesome? And to hear the story, I mean, just to hear you know, Lazarus, you know, talking, I mean, he's like, you know, have the people, I mean, they're not any different than us. I mean, they would have been imitating, you know, what had taken place. They go, you know, some people who sit right there, we were there at the tomb and man, it stink up. I mean, it stunk. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the light came and, and Lazarus, like, you know, I don't know if this is how bunnies got involved with Easter, but, you know, came hopping out, you know, that, that his grave clothes were so tight that he's hopping out and people, you know, be laughing and just going, oh my God, it'd be just something that's so celebratory, right? Watching, you know, what, what, what had taken place. And it says in verse two, it says, a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor and Martha served and Lazarus was amongst those who ate with him. And, and you learn something about Lazarus' life because it's a lot why many of you are here in church today, is that you're here because Jesus raised you in the sense from the dead. And, and now in your life, you draw close to him. Wherever Jesus is, you want to be there too. And if there's a place to be, and, and one of the blessings of the church, the organized church, that Jesus himself declares is that there's something sweet about fellowship. Amen? That when brothers and sisters come together in Christ, that there's something, you know, again, uh, even communion of itself, there's so much, you know, misunderstanding about, you know, what communion is. Is this consubstantiation? Is it transubstantiation? Is Jesus literally turned into, you know, the, the body and the blood, which to me would be a greater miracle than probably any other thing? Or is he in, you know, the elements? Is he under the elements? I mean, you, you, you think of all those things. I, I, I believe that these are symbolic, that Yes, his presence is here in a very special way, but that is not his body, and that is not his blood. I don't care how much faith you have and how great your prayer life is, you will not turn that into his body and his blood. Scripture is adamantly clear. He died once and for all, okay? But, but I get it. I, I understand, you know, the things that, that, and there's something beautiful. Like I said, when the church comes together, we think of, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus said, in my name, there I am in the midst of thee. Something special, something sweet, you know, about this fellowship. And so this, this night would have been such a wonderful event to be at. I mean, just the, the buzz and all the things that were going on, the miracles that Jesus had performed and all the things that people were hearing. Because wherever Jesus is, there's one thing that you can be sure of. There's life there. Amen. That's one of the things that we love about when there's, when there's true fellowship. I mean, and I don't mean every time believers get together because believers can be carnal too, right? There, there can be division. You know, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, you know, we allow division to exist between us. Actually, you know, in Matthew 18, when he says, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, he's talking about the issue of forgiveness is that when we're not living in, in forgiveness towards one another, obviously bitterness and resentment, you know, set in. 
And so when we realize how much that I need forgiveness, right, and how much I've been forgiven, how easy then is it to forgive other people? That's the beauty of always having the cross before us, right, is it brings us to that place I recognize my own need, you know, for Jesus. And so verse 3 goes on, it says, And then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume and made of essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. Obviously, if you've studied, you know, your Bible, you know that it was customary when someone walked into a home that there was a basin there of water and a towel, and you could wash your feet, wash your hands. They, they were, you know, they had open sandals. Their feet were dirty. They were tired uh, from walking. Their hands would have been dirty. You know, they handled animals and went from place to place. And so uh, that would have been something that was customary. And yet, you know, we have Jesus who comes in and and then Mary, you know, sees him there. And, and obviously there's something tremendously spiritual and scriptural about this, that she's anointing Jesus in the true sense for what? For his burial. I mean, imagine Jesus, you know, coming into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry, you know, and then the fragrance of spikenard, you know, the aroma, you know, of, of Jesus, you know, there. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing, you know, when you think about it. But one of the things I think it's noteworthy is, you know, there's something when someone has truly been forgiven and you think of Mary and as you study her life and, and that Jesus, you know, forgave her and cleansed her and, and set her free, that there was nothing that she was going to hold back from him. You know, you think about whether the spikenar was considered a dowry. We know that, you know, um, from scripture and, and, and history that that perfume probably cost about a year's wages and that she takes it and she breaks it and she anoints Jesus with it. And there's something that's so sweet about that. It just reminds me of what pure worship is. Amen. And, and some of you, you know, you, you, when you worship the Lord, I mean, there's just this, that same fragrance is your, your life puts that off that you just love worshiping the Lord. And, and you're not worried about like, was Mary, I guess there's a question, was Mary concerned about what people thought about her while she was anointing Jesus' feet. You go, no. All she cared about was Jesus. And, and I hope, you know, and pray that they don't, for all of us that when we read this, that that speaks to us, you know, that, that we shouldn't really care so much about what other people think when we're worshiping Jesus, right? Is that, and we did, I love the fact that we turn the lights down so we're not looking at each other, you know, that we can just focus on our relationship with the Lord. And I, and I pray that you take full advantage of that. That you know that he's here and that he is, he enjoys, he, it's, scripture says that he inhabits the praise of his people. Amen. And he's in this place and we have an opportunity to love him. This uniqueness of Jesus, he's not dead, he's alive and he's here in this place. And so, again, you know, I, I put my notes here. I said, Do you ever feel like you're holding back in worship? I ask myself that. Um, that you're not, in the truest sense, giving your all. There's so many distractions. You can think about where you're going after church, you know, what are you going to eat, you know, who are you going to see, and all these things. But I don't think Mary had any of those type of things on her mind, do you? I think she was caught up in the moment. You know, we, we sing often about that, just being caught up in the moment with the Lord. And again, I think, you know, some of the times, you know, when it comes to our worship, you know, we're so worried about, you know, what other people think that, you know, um, you know we, we live in a culture today that people are just so easily offended. I mean, my gosh, I mean, it's like you just listen to conversations. It's like, can you just be thankful? I mean, why is everything you know, always a problem? You know, and it's like for Mary, I mean, there wasn't. I mean, it was just she was so grateful that that Jesus had saved her, that Jesus had touched her life and that she was a different person. And, and I look at this and, and like I said, I, you know, we need to ask the Lord, you know, in our own lives for understanding that we recognize how wretched that we are apart from him. We, again, religious people forget that, you know, but people who are caught up in the moment with Jesus, they don't forget that. You recognize, you know, I, I know, I know what I was. I know where I came from. And the only, the only reason that I'm in the place that I am is because of the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and Mary definitely, definitely has that in her own heart and mind. You know, great question to ask ourselves as, you know, as we head into this, this Easter week, you know, am I living a life of gratitude? 
You know, the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You, you want to see what someone's really like, just listen to them, you know, because you can't fake it. I mean, because what happens is it comes out. You might say things that you wish you didn't say, but once you say it, it reveals really what's in your heart. And, and the beauty of what Mary's doing, she's expressing a heart that is just so, so grateful to Jesus. And so as I read this, you know, I'm reminded, you know, this week, you know, that, and Lord, give me a heart of gratitude. Help me to appreciate you and to appreciate the life that you've saved us for. You know, you know what the tragedy is? Not just what it was for the religious Jews that day. It's a tragedy for me and you today is when, you know, we don't see Jesus in our life. And I don't mean just on Sunday. I mean, is he with you every day? Is Jesus in every situation that you face? Is he in every circumstance? Is he in every trial? Is he in the midst of every conflict? Yeah, he's there. You know, life, life reveals what's in us. It doesn't make us, but it reveals, again, what's already going on inside of us. And so what I love as I look at Mary's life is I see a life that's, that's dedicated to worship here. And so she gives Jesus her all. So she takes this costly oil of spike guard and she just spins it on him. She, and the, she's such a beautiful picture. You know, I, I told you when I went to Egypt, I, I was asking the tour guide, I said, Hey, do you guys, you know, have any, you know, alabaster, you know, stone. I was looking for this, you know, alabaster, like an alabaster jar. And we finally, you know, found some. And as we were talking about it, you know, it was just that it's a symbol, you know, that alabaster is a symbol of someone who gave their all. And, and I love that. And it was, I would love the fact that it was inexpensive uh, and that, you know, you could bring some home. I, I look forward to, you know, another trip there and being able to find more things and, you know, bring them home. They make wonderful gifts. You know, they're a great thing to be able to give to people in your life and be able to say, you know, hey, you remind me, you know, of Mary who gave her all, you know, and I think that's what the alabaster stone is. And, and so it's just a, a beautiful reminder of that. Verses four through nine go on and it says, but Judas Iscariot, and so here's, here's, just picture this. So Mary's taken this, this spike nard, she's broken this alabaster open. She's poured it out on Jesus. This beautiful fragrant aroma has just filled the air in this room as people are looking at Jesus. And it says, but Judas Iscariot, the disciple whom would soon betray Jesus said, that perfume was worth a year's wage. So at least he knew what the value of it. It says it should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor as he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. Now, the beauty of it is of God's timing. Did Mary know? No. But Jesus knew. That's the most important thing. You know, we're all going to go through things in life that they don't make sense to us. But the good news is, even the things, you know, as remember the life of Joseph, right? Uh, even the things which the enemy meant for evil, God can what? He can turn it for good. He can use it for good. But the key is, is are you looking to Jesus, right? Are you looking for Jesus? Because like I said, your response is going to reveal everything about you. It's like when you say something about somebody else, it doesn't really say much about them. It says a lot more about you, right? And it's, and it's important that we see this. And so he says, Jesus said, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. It says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It says, when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. I mean, so here's Lazarus. He's causing, you know, quite a stir, you know, the guy who, who formerly stinketh. I mean, imagine people coming in and going, I just want to smell you, man, because I heard you were four days and I know, you know, it stinketh, you know, and, and you smell pretty good, you know? I mean, I don't know if they had Old Spice back then or not, but, you know, but verse 10 goes on, it says, and then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too. Man, I mean, think about that. I mean, that's not just a little verse there. I mean, all what did Lazarus do? All he did was get sick and die, right? You're going to kill a guy for getting sick? I mean, talk about getting somebody when they're down and you go, but the fact that Jesus brought him back to life, that what? Lazarus was what? He was living proof, right? That Jesus could raise people from the dead. What did they want to do? 
They wanted to destroy the evidence, you could say, right? That's what they were seeking to do. I mean, again, it's like Jesus said, follow me. And he says, I'll make you become what? Fishers of what? Men. And what's the best bait if you are a fisher, if you're a fisherman? It's live bait, right? Live bait. Your life, my life, we are live bait. I mean, hopefully, you know, hopefully you're not a lure, you know, but hopefully you're a live bait. And in your life, I mean, you're squirming, you're going through things, but it's, what is it doing? It's causing an attraction. It's getting people's attention. Lazarus was live bait and people were doing what? They were taking notice of it. That's what we're called to be, right? We're to live our lives in the open, to be a light that's set on a hill that can't be hidden. And you go, man, there's, there's challenges in that, but man, what a blessing, you know, to catch the big ones, right? That God would use our lives to catch people for him. And again, just loving the Lord, you know, verse 11 goes on. It says, for it was because of him that many people had deserted and believed in Jesus. And you think about that, you go, a changed life, right? Isn't that what people are looking at? I mean, you hear people's testimonies, right? And you go, what a testimony. What a testimony of God's faithfulness. I mean, it's not anything much if you just went, you know, my whole life, yeah, I was pretty much perfect, you know, that straight A student, you know, went to college, you got, you know, a degree, got a master's, got a doctorate. And you go, that's, that's awesome. Those are great things. You go, but the one that really gets your attention is the guy who's the murderous thief who's on the cross next to Jesus, right? And he's, he's suffering the penalty for his sin. Everybody goes, wow, you know, yes, he's getting what he deserves, right? And then Jesus looks at that guy and goes, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, that gets your attention, right? Because what does that do? You go, well, for a righteous man, somebody might die. You go, but while we were still sinners, man, that gives me hope, right? Is to be able to tell people your testimony, because if I got what I deserved, if you got what you deserved, we'd all be in hell, right? But that God who is rich in his love and his mercy as we celebrate in communion, what? He died for us. Why? So that we could live. Because the Bible is explicitly clear, the soul that sins will surely what? I've earned the right to die. I deserve to die. You do too. But Jesus came that we might have life and have life, not just that we, you know, get a do over, but he said, but life more abundant. Yeah. A changed life from the inside out. I think a Lazarus and question that begs to be asked is what has Jesus done for you? Think about that, you know, this week. What has he done for you? I mean, living a, a resurrected life and being open to talking about it can have an amazing effect on people's lives. Would you agree? Because it gives them hope. Because if we're telling the people the truth, I'm going, I didn't deserve this. I deserve hell. But God loved me and he loves you and he died for you. And if you'll place your hope and your trust in, if you won't miss the day of your visitation. See, and people go, well, I just you know, planted seed. And you go, but do we have that urgency? Because think about this with regard to, is this a triumph or a tragedy when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey? Because Jesus, we're going to find that it breaks his heart because people missed it. They missed a day. They missed the day he says, of their visitation, that God himself came to his own, as John said, and his own what? They knew him not. They missed it. I don't know how many times you're going to hear the truth before you respond to it. I don't know if God's going to come back a second time. I, I don't know that. God knows that. But I know that he wants every single person to be saved. And I know that he's standing at the door of every heart and he's knocking, but I know that it comes with personal responsibility too, to turn the handle and to let him in. Jesus says, if you let me in, I will in no wise cast you out. I will come in, my father and I, we will sup with you. We will have fellowship with you. And that comes from Jesus himself, but we have to turn the hand. And, and we can't be so flippant to think that, you know, well, you know, there's always tomorrow. No, there's not always tomorrow. I shared with you 
my sister-in-law just passed away. My neighbor just passed away. I mean, you, you, you see them one day and the next day they're not here. You know, today is the day of salvation. If you hear that the Lord is standing at the door of your heart and you knock, you better respond to it. You better respond to what he's saying because he's not playing around. It's not a joke. He's not kidding. There are consequences. There's blessings, but there's also tremendous consequences that come with rejecting the word of God in our lives. And that's for the religious person. That's for the non-believer. That's what you, I love when you study this. You, you think what, what takes place here. Verse 12 and 13 goes on. It says, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. So guess what? Everybody's without, without excuse. The news swept through the city. Okay. It says a large crowd of Passover visitors. There's a key. Passover visitors, meaning they came from the outside in, right? They weren't in Jerusalem. They were traveling, many from foreign countries coming to the land. It says they took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. They're calling it right. They're calling for what it is. There's three mandatory feasts that, you know, Jews were to return to Jerusalem for Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Okay. So the palm branch, they understood, you know, had tremendous significance. When they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they would take palm branches, right? They would go out into the wilderness and for seven days they would live there and they would eat and they would be reminded of what? The faithfulness of God, that God was with them, that he tabernacled with them, right? That he brought them through the wilderness. What a great reminder for me and you today. You might be in a wilderness place in your life today. I can tell you this, God is with you. You're not alone. You know, Paul would write again to the church, you know, in Rome. I mean, there ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep him from you, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And that's a great reminder at Easter because he lives. He didn't just die, but he rose again. He's alive today and he's alive and he can be alive in me and alive in you. That word Hosanna just means, you know, save now or Lord, save us. And as you look at this, again, coming into, you know, uh, Jerusalem, just, you know, days before he comes up, you know, from the Dead Sea, um, from, well, just the other side of Jericho there, modern day Jordan, and everything is, you know, up to Jerusalem. You know, there's a difference from the Dead Sea at, you know, below sea level to 2,500 uh, feet, you know, in elevation there in Jerusalem. So everything is up and on his way up. Remember, he, he heals uh, in there in Jericho, two blind men, you know, remember uh, blind Bartimaeus, you know, the, probably the most famous one. So you, you think about what, what's transpired, that there is no excuse. You know, the news of Jesus has come into the city. What was the news? It wasn't just Lazarus being raised from the dead. It was, you know, blind Bar Bartimaeus. I mean, you think about in the gospel accounts, there's like, you know, 42 miracles, you know, that, that we see. You imagine watching this, you know, this procession, right, coming into Jerusalem, right? It's kind of like, you know, this didn't happen, okay? But, but picture this for a second. It's like a, like a parade, right? Jesus is coming into town, and the news of what Jesus has done is coming with him. But if you could see it like a parade, you'd have someone carrying a water jug, right? And they come in, they go, what's that? What's that, Mom? Dad, what is that? And they go, that's the water pot at the miracle at Cana. It had water in it, and Jesus turned it into, into wine. Huh? You know, the people go, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then you think, there, what's that? Oh, that's a, a, Roman, a Roman official. That's his son. He was dead, and Jesus wasn't even there. And he told him, he said, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. Your son, your servant, this, he's healed, right? And you can, people go, you know, and, and it just, the, the, the list goes, you know, on and on. I mean, Peter's mother-in-law, you know, healed. Everybody's going, okay. Um, yeah, uh, look, you know, I mean, here's people who set free from, from demons, right? Just totally set free. There's blind men. I mean, not, not, not Jesus didn't restore their sight. You read the, the account of this, what makes it so amazing. It's not like they were, had eyesight and they went blind. They had no eyes. Right? And they're going, he had no eyes. Go, oh, yeah. well, I told him my favorite one. He goes, yeah, Jesus spit. He spit like only a guy can. Flew, spit on the ground, rolled it into a brown eyeball. 
put it in the guy's eye and told him to go wash his face. And what? And the people look and they go, oh my, that's an eyeball. And they go, yeah. And then, hey, and there's the guy. He, he doesn't even have a limb. He, the paralytic, they dropped him down through the roof, remember? Yeah, there he is. Everybody's right. I mean, that's not too far-fetched, so is it? Because that's the stories that were traveling with Jesus. Jesus was touching lives. He was transforming lives. There was nothing religious about it. As I said, all the people that were involved in religion in Jerusalem says, what do they do? They flocked. I mean, all I can tell you from this church is that Jesus is a lot better than religion. Okay. I mean, you, you learn it. And he just, because when Jesus is there and Jesus is doing some things are happening, right? I don't know what your, what your take on the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, but you know, I'm not a cessationist. Okay. I believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. I believe God is still doing miracles. I believe every time a person gets saved, it's a miracle. Amen. And I believe that there's healings. I, I see it. I, I get to participate in it. I, I watch what God does. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, you know, that the presence of God, now don't diminish that. You know, it wasn't being diminished here. And yet in, in the lives of people where it's not happening, what do they want to do? They want to kill it. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Because he was what? He was living proof, right? You got to shut him down. You got to quiet him. You got to squilch him. And Jesus, you know, the same way. But again, what can we rest in today? Whatever God says, that'll come to pass. Amen. Say, I like Psalm 118. It's a direct quote from the Bible, verses 24 through 26 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's speaking of this day that Jesus is going into Jerusalem. It says, please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. You know, sometimes we sing it in church like, this is the day, this is, and we're thinking today, right? You know, and, and there could be a truth in that, but that's not what Psalm 118 is talking about. It's talking about this very specific day in human history where Jesus comes into Jerusalem to fulfill his word. Verses 14 and 15 go on. It says, and Jesus found a young donkey and he rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Again, all these things that were written in advance. Why? Because God wants us to know. You go, I, I, maybe, maybe his truths are hidden. No, he's not hiding his truth from us. He wants, he's not willing that any would perish, right? That's why Jesus came in human form. John says, we touched him. We beheld him. He's not something you just have to believe, you know, oh, he was in the heavens. Maybe we saw him, you know. No, he came from heaven to earth. He was born in human flesh. He walked amongst us. And John says, and we touched him. We beheld the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Again, so the prophecy of Zechariah, right? Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, he is, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Scripture is reliable. You can trust it, okay? It says, when the king comes, you know, and, and often you know, we look at this, and this is where the religious Jews missed it. When a king would come, you know, into the city, most of the time, if he was going to war, he, he rode on what? A black, a black horse, right? And if you were a Roman king, you came and you had thousands of soldiers, you know, with swords and shields behind you. It was a show of what? Of force, right? Or maybe as we even see in the book of, you know, uh, Revelation, when, when Jesus does return at the second coming, he's going to be riding what? What's he on? What's he on? Air Force One, right? Air Force, uh, he's right, a white horse he'll be riding in on, right? And, 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 and obviously, that's a sign of what? Of victory. Victory even before what? Even the fight begins. That's what's so awesome about it. This, this battle's going to be over before it starts. And yet here, he comes in on, on the cold of a donkey. Now, that wasn't unprecedented that, that kings would ride on a donkey, but they would do that usually what? After. After the battle, or if they wanted to come and, and identify with the people and they would, they would recognize that they came lowly, like they were, they were trying to, 
come alongside and help people under, understand that they came in peace, okay? So you didn't come riding on a black horse where it would make people afraid. They just came on a donkey. But can you imagine riding a donkey to war? I mean, I was sharing this on Wednesday. I remember when I was a kid, my dad was an educator. They had a donkey basketball game. The Kiwanis Club sponsored it at the high school. And all the teachers, you know, were playing each other. And you couldn't even ride the donkey. They pulled the donkey. The donkey wouldn't go. You know, and you'd try to, and it was just, it was, it was a fun thing. It was a, it was a fundraiser, but it was a, you know, you're not going to be riding a donkey into, into battle. And here Jesus is riding a donkey that what? Has never been ridden before. Have you ever tried to ride a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden? All right. Uh, when I read that for the very first time, I remember there was a song by Tim McGraw that was out. It says, I went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing. I rode a bull for 2.7 seconds named Fu Manchu. That's what I picture of Jesus. If, if you're riding a donkey that's never been ridden, imagine him going through town. It would get people's attention, right? Because it wouldn't be like slow. It would be that thing would be like, you're going, and, and here he is. I mean, you go, hey, eight seconds. He did it, you know? But you go, no, but, but it's, he's riding it. And, and there's a point to this. He's riding it as if what? That donkey was broken. Because guess what? It was. It demonstrates God's in what? Complete control. And if he can control a donkey, can he control the circumstances of my life and your life? Yeah. And I don't want you to miss that because we all go through tough things. You go through circumstances. It seems like my life is out of control. I don't think I, and here's Jesus, you know, demonstrating that he's in control of everything, the heavens, the earth, nature. You know, remember it was of Jesus. They said, who is this that even the wind and the sea do what? Obey him. Yeah, and a donkey too, you know. But I, I love that. You study through there. And so here he is, you know, Jesus in other gospels, you know, it tells us that this wasn't a spontaneous event, okay? Jesus planned this. He's fulfilling his word. People go, oh, this just spontaneously happened. No, it might seem that way to the people, but but you careful reading, you know, of, of the gospel accounts, and, and, and it's in all four gospel accounts, which means, Jesus wants us to understand something about this triumphal entry, okay? That's the fulfillment of Scripture here. But he says this, you know, in Matthew 21, too, it says, untie them and bring them to me. He says, and he told them, and if anybody asks you what you're doing, tell them the Lord has need of them. And remember, you know, he, and, and then they're going to go on later and they'll celebrate the Last Supper, right? Well, it says Jesus had already made preparations, right? That he'd already rented the room. And he had everything situated because he'd been in Jerusalem just weeks before. And, and obviously, being God, did he know the very day? You know, you go, absolutely. I, I shared with you, you know, keep in mind, you know, uh, April the 6th, AD 32. Again, and I read this and I realize, you know, we can trust, you know, our lives to Jesus. You can trust today to Jesus. You can trust tomorrow to Jesus. Like I said, I, you know, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know what, who holds tomorrow. Yeah. And, and that's such a great reminder, you know, to us, everything that Jesus did, and I stress everything that he did was according to plan. And again, what a beautiful thing. And yet, you know, Luke chapter 19, like I said, I go, was it triumph or was it tragedy? Well, Luke tells us this was a tragedy. But yes, he came into town fulfilling not only Zechariah's prophecy, but also a prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. I'll read in just a moment. And the, and the Jews missed it. And it would cost them heavily. And so Jesus is weeping. Only two times Jesus weeps in Scripture. And they're right around this. First was at, what, the tomb of Lazarus? And secondly, when he rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, he looks out over the city and he's weeping everything but triumph. It's a tragedy because the people missed it. And what does that tell us? That God is going to hold each and every one of us accountable for his word. You will never stand before God and go, well, God, I didn't know. I mean, how, how can I? And he's going to go, you didn't know the day of your visitation. You had a Bible. It was in your scriptures. That's what he's saying to the Jews, right? You had it right there. Your prophet, Daniel, your prophet, Zechariah, they told you that they wrote about this day and, and you missed it. 
You go, you had religion, but you didn't have Jesus. Jesus changes everything. Luke 19, look at this, verses 41 through 44. It says, but as he came closer to Jerusalem, so he's now coming in you know, on, on Palm Sunday, it says, and he saw the city ahead. He began to weep. He says, how I wish today that you of all people, he's thinking of the religious Jews there in, in Jerusalem, understood the way to peace. What is the way to peace? The cross, Jesus. But now it's too late and it's hidden from your eyes. You can miss it. There's a warning to this. You can miss it, okay? Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in from every side, and they will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Wow. Broke his heart. What was he talking about? 80, 70, right? When Titus would come in and sack Jerusalem. Jesus knew that it was coming because he knows everything. And he's saying, because you missed the visitation, because you didn't know the time that the Messiah was coming, salvation is lost. And, then, and you think about that, which is 40 years. I mean, they had 40 years to turn, 40 years to repent. And yet you look in the book of Daniel in chapter 9, and we have an exact, a very precise timetable of these events, okay, that he's speaking of here. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, you know, we see from the going forth of the commandment, there's going to be 483 years, it says, and the Messiah will be cut off. It says, now listen and understand, seven sets of seven there in verse 25, plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time of the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with the streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. And after this, a period of 62 sets of sevens, the anointed one will be killed. Wow, I talk about explicit you know, terms here. It says, appearing to have accomplished nothing, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and a war, and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. So Daniel prophesies here, there are what, seven sevens or seven, you know, most biblical scholars will, will stand by this and go, there are seven, seven-year periods. So if you take seven times seven, that's 49 uh, years, it says Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And then there'll be a period of time of 62 sevens or 62 seven-year periods. That equals 434 if you're a math major there. So if you take 49 years plus 434 years, that equals 483 years total. So from Daniel's prophecy, you'd be able to obviously count from the time that the decree goes forth to the time that Messiah presents himself here on what? Palm Sunday, okay? And is cut off, he's killed, okay? So there was a, I've shared this with you numerous times, uh, a, a scholar, his name was uh, Sir Robert Anderson. He was the head investigator there at Scotland Yard. And he wrote a book, he actually wrote a couple books, but this one was called The Coming Prince. And it was based on his investigation of the dates in question. And he uses mathematical probability uh, to reach his conclusion. So first there was a commandment, obviously that was given in history, and that we know was on March 14th, 445 BC, when King Artaxerxes gave the command to return back to Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. So that was in the fifth century BC. There was a he Hebrew uh, named Nehemiah, obviously he was a, a cupbearer to the king there in Medo-Persia, um, King Artaxerxes, and he wrote of this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So you can go study this for yourself, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the reign of Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, it says, I took wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? And so Nehemiah goes on to explain that he was sad because he got the report of the city, of the people there in Jerusalem. The city was still desolate. And, and so Nehemiah requests of the king that he can go back and and Artaxerxes, you know, grants this wish. He grants it to him right on the spot there, gives him official letters and gives him all the supplies, everything that he needs to do. And this occurred, as you studied out, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. So if you think about this, again, look at it historically. So bear with me in this because it points to how specific God is about everything that he does. Nothing happens by chance, okay? God's in control, and that's good for us to know. 
Uh, Artaxerxes ascended to the throne there of, of the Medo-Persian Empire in July of 465 BC. The 20th year of his reign would have been in July of 446 BC. So the decree was approximately nine months later in the month of Nisan, that's March or April, on the calendar. By Hebrew tradition, uh, when the day of the month is not specifically stated as an Artaxerxes decree, it's given to be the first day of that month. So consequently, the very day of Artaxerxes decree was the first day of the Hebrew month of Nisan in 445 BC. The day of Nisan in 445 BC corresponds to the 14th day of March. So if you go from Daniel's prophecy, you'd be able to count from that time that the decree goes forth to the time Messiah presents himself, like I said, and is cut off. So if you go from 445 BC and move forward 483 years, you arrive at a very specific date, and that's the date I was telling you about of April the 6th. So he points out in his book, uh, Sir Robert Anderson does uh, in precise numbers using, uh, again, um, not using a Julian calendar, as you and I are familiar with 365 on the third days, but he's using the Babylonian calendar, which is 360 days. It's a lunar uh, year, not a solar calendar. And so if you take that, the math goes like this, 360 days in a year times 483, equals 173,880 days. Well, that's a lot of days. And so he took the date, March 14th, 445 BC, when the decree was given, and he counted forward 173,880 days, and it brought him to April 6, 32 AD, which was the 10th of Nisan, the exact date that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And you go, why is that so important? He goes, because with that, there was a judgment that was proclaimed upon the nation of Israel for missing the appointed time. He's going, because it was right there. He goes, you could do the math. You could listen to the word of God. You could listen to the prophecies. And again, there's a great warning for us. There's a day of visitation. And if we miss it, we miss so great a salvation. And so you look at verse 16 there, it says, of John chapter 12, and it says, and his disciples didn't understand, which I'm glad in one sense, because they don't understand things. I feel like I'm okay. You know, he says, at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, he says, but after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Well, obviously the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet, right? Because Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit's given, he will bring to remembrance all the things that I've told you. So they had an aha moment after the Holy Spirit was given there. That's what Jesus said. And so we have the Holy Spirit. If Christ is in you, you have the Holy Spirit, and he will make Jesus' word known to us. And so, again, they remembered, and like I said, and as they went from there, verse 17 through 19, it says, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the dead, uh, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. And that was the reason why so many men went out to meet him. It says, because they had heard about this miraculous sign then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone's gone after him. And then the interesting things, you know, from there, you know, Jesus goes on and he does something that, you know, I just want you to study throughout the course of this week. He said in verse 20 and 21, it says, some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. And it says, and they said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. And some of your translation says, you know, we want to see Jesus. And, and I love that, you know, or just give me Jesus, you know. And, and there's good news today, you know, for me and you, is that we can see him too, and we can meet him because he's here. He's present in, in this very moment. And, and, and what's interesting is John goes on in verse 22 through 24, it says, Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus replied, he says, now has the, come the uh, time for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Up to this point, every time the people tried to, you know, tell Jesus that he was the king and, and make it public, what did he tell them? He said, my hour has not yet come. Remember, he turns the water into wine. His, his own mother comes to him and he says, you know, woman, he says, you know, my time has not come. What he was saying was he did what his mother asked him to do, but what he was saying was that what, what you hope will be accomplished won't be accomplished because Mary understood that he was the Messiah. She was hoping that when he turned the water to wine, that people would see him as the promised Messiah. Miracles don't make people believe in Jesus in the truest sense. Miracles can harden your heart. Pharaoh is a perfect example of that. 
you know, Jesus will, will is what's going to change our life. The truth of God's word. I mean, people go, if I just saw one miracle, I go, no, if it was just one, then you'd have to see two and then you'd have to see three. If, if Jesus resurrection from the dead isn't enough, then nothing will be enough. And he says, but I tell you the truth in verse 24, he says, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And what he was talking about there was first and foremost was his own life, right? He said, if, you know, if, if, if he didn't die for our sin, if he, if he bypassed the cross, then you and I would still be dead in our trespasses and sin. He had to die, but he said that the beautiful thing, and he uses germination as, a pro, as, as the, the, the symbol here, is that he goes, but if I die, if I die for your sin, and I'm resurrected into that new life, just like when you take a kernel of wheat and you plant it in the ground, it dies, it's alone. It said, but then eventually what happens, that germination process begins to take place, and that little stem comes up through the ground, and it produces another kernel, and another kernel, and another kernel. And as the more and more this goes on, eventually you have what? You have an entire field, right? And so Jesus was saying that this was necessary. My death is necessary in order for you to have life. And then that means what? Of us coming to him and recognizing him as our savior, as the Lord of our life, find our life in him. And he says, and if anyone comes after me, he said, he must too, what? Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me daily. There has to be a death in our own life, you know, and, and, and I don't want you to miss this, you know, um, I invite the, the worship team to come out. And just as we prepare, you know, for communion, we would just be amiss today if we don't recognize this, because I want you to read John chapter 12. You'll have to study it for yourself, but Jesus connects, he connects the cross in this moment when the, we're talking about these Greeks come to him, right? And Jesus says that my hour has, has come. This, this, is, this is the moment, is that Jesus came to die, okay? And without the cross, there's no glory. Without death, there's no resurrection. And what was true for Jesus, church, is true for me and you. Jesus didn't come into this world to make you a better person, okay? People sometimes come to church, they go, you know, I think church will help me, you know, help me be nicer. He did not come for that purpose. He came to give dead people life. And if you're not willing to die, then you'll never live. See, he said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And he who, who finds his life will what? Will lose it for my sake. And so there, there's a call here to death to ourselves, to receive the life that's in Christ Jesus. And, and like I said, it, we'd be so missed. We'd just go, oh, it's what Jesus did. Yes, it's what Jesus did. But he says, but my disciples those that, that would come after me would follow in the same manner. That would, There's a death. I mean, obviously, coming to Jesus, if you listen to somebody's testimony, they go, I had to die to this. I had to let go of this in order to live. And he's here today in this place. And there's a visitation in all of our lives. And there's things in my life, there's things in your life. And he's going, you, need, you better let go of that. It's going to kill you. It's not giving you life. It's going to take your life from you. It won't rob you of your salvation. It'll rob you of the joy that you can have in Christ Jesus. See, the fact of the cross is that Jesus died once and for all. Amen? But there's an application of the cross that has to be applied day by day by day by day. See, the religious leaders missed it because they missed the time of his visitation. They knew all kinds of things, but they missed that moment when Jesus opened their eyes to see something, and they chose, and he did it right in front of me. He removed the veil, right, so they could see it, and they rejected it. He's, I always believe Jesus is knocking at the door of every heart, and he's wanting something from us. He's wanting us to, to let go of things. He's wanting us to give up things. He's wanting us to die to things. That's what Jesus said, if any person desires to come after me, let him pick up what? He didn't say their Easter basket, right? He said, let them pick up their what? Their cross. You have a cross and I have a cross. And you go, Jesus had a cross. He says, then follow him daily. What is it today? What is it that if you prepare for communion? For some, maybe it's receiving Christ and the forgiveness of your sin. 
And that's the cross today that you pick up. For others, you've received Christ. You go, but there's something that he's asking you today. Actually, he's not asking you. He's demanding of you. He's saying, let go. You let go of that. Put that away. Crucify it. It's got to die in order for you to live. And I always love this. As soon as I share anything like that, all right, I know because I trust the Holy Spirit in all of our lives. He's already quickened that thing that you need to bring to him, that I need to bring to him. But it's a choice that you make. Today is the day of his visitation. And the beauty of it is, if we let Jesus have his way, it's glory. The end result is glory. It's always glory. Is there pain sometimes in the offering? Yeah. But is it worth it? Absolutely. Nothing can compare to Jesus. Amen. So let go. Whatever those things are, they let go. I'll invite those that will pass out the elements of communion to do so. And as we do, just take that, that bread today. Hold it afresh in your hand and go, Lord, thank you. I mean, because I know, I know so much. And I have failed so miserably. But God, thank you. Thank you that your arm's not too short, that you can't save. Thank you that your ear's not deaf, that you can't hear. When we cry out to you, save us, that you will. He saved you once. Can he save you again? I don't mean for all eternity. I just mean in your sin. Call out to you. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your love. And pray, Lord, as we receive communion today, that, Lord, it would be as fresh as the very first time, that we'd be so overcome with your joy to know that our sins are forgiven, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that, Lord, you, you suffered for us. You suffered because of us, but, Lord, you did it because you love us. Not that we'd go back like pigs and wallow in the mud again, but that, God, that we'd go and, as you would declare, sin no more, because now we have your presence and we have your power in our life. May as we receive communion today, may it remind us of that truth, that you're with us, that you're in us, that your power and your presence are ours. And not because we deserve it, but because you love us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.